We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Check out the podcast How To with Charles Duhigg. Each week, How To tackles listeners' toughest problems with the help of experts. Their latest episode, How to Get Away with Murder, features an amateur podcaster investigating a long-ago murder in her small town. How did that murderer get away with it for so long? Charles brings in a veteran true crime writer to figure out who to talk to, what clues to look for, and how to tell the story in a way that gives a voice to the victim. Get How To with Charles Duhigg from Slate, wherever you listen. This is Ben from Hudson. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime, crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week, still on the fence about white supremacists. What? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. These two podcasts should help you out. First, we'll take a British look at America's anti-government movement, from militias to anti-maskers. We'll review Two Minutes Past Nine from BBC Sounds. Then, WBEZ reveals the history of how a punk rock movement was co-opted by neo-Nazis in season three of Motive. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and the one who thinks I don't read these scripts, but I did this time, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Did you write that line about still being on the fence about white supremacists? I did. Yes. And apparently you didn't read the script. You just I would keep, just, I would you just keep like to coming say out of the closet like a Murphy bed. I would just like to say it. Um, I denounce white supremacists. See how easy that was? That's good. See how easy that was? Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, former defense investigator, and the one most likely to get enraged by just about anything, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. It's so hard to contain my rage these days, Rebecca. (laughs) I I need a new... I mean, walking doesn't even cut into it anymore. Mm. And finally with us, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast about UFOs and our favorite naysayer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. I'm wearing a lot of logos tonight. It's oh, been a yeah? While. <laughs> <laughs> because we're not doing video tonight, so you can just exactly. like wear whatever logos you want. What are you wearing? I got a Adidas Greek national team soccer jersey. Mm-hmm. I got a Mets cap. Mm. I'm wearing some Nike shorts, although that wouldn't show in. up. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the Mets and the Greek soccer team combined do not win a whole lot. Yeah, I'm guessing that uh, based on the content of these two podcasts, that we were very quickly going to run afoul of Facebook's community standards. Oh, so that's why we're not doing video this week? I think putting, you know, the word Nazi in your SEO yeah. is probably uh, bad news. Yeah, we don't want to just... Ha- Facebook would, like, maybe not be able to tell the difference between our denouncing white supremacists and our being white supremacists. Yeah, because when they did the promotional thing about how we're reviewing crime, a lot of people didn't know what the fuck we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what? Uh, it's, it's all right. Love crime. What? Crime. Yes, I love it. Love crime. Love it. We got some really nasty comments on that on yeah. Facebook, too. That's what happens when you advertise outside your target outside, outside, outside your podcast feed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like not just podcast listeners and their friends. It's everyone. Yeah. But if you've recently joined us, hello. Hi. It's nice Hi. to meet you. We actually do have a bunch of new listeners. I know that because we yeah. have a bunch of new people in our group, in our Facebook group. And we've been getting emails, like a lot of emails from new listeners that are like, I just discovered your podcast. Yeah, so yeah. if that's you, welcome to our family. And I hope you also denounce white supremacists. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to hate this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we get into it? Let's let's show those new listeners what we actually do. All right. I, I hear an explosion. Unfortunately, and since I grew up in a war tour zones and I heard explosions before, I immediately knew this sounds like a, like a bomb. The Oklahoma City bombing opened America's eyes to a dangerous counterculture of anti-government groups. Most famous among these people was Timothy McVeigh, who believed his act of domestic terrorism would be a call to arms for a race war and a violent overthrow of the government. For years, Timothy McVeigh has been coming up in my reporting. People always reference him in interviews. I've come to think of him like this ghost of some kind always lurking in the corner of my office, haunting me. A reminder of where domestic terrorism has led in the past. In two minutes past nine from BBC Sounds, a straight line is drawn from the sympathies of those militia groups to today's conspiracy believers, race baiters, and COVID anti-maskers. When you see people with guns walking up to the lawmakers in Michigan threatening them, McVeigh would have loved this. He would have been right in that group. Host Leah Satilli, best known for Bundyville, provides a primer on American extremism for the podcast's intended British audience. 25 years after the Oklahoma City bombing, two minutes past nine is a story that is both evergreen and incredibly timely. Now, programming note, we are going to be talking about some plot points from two minutes past nine. So if you want to remain spoiler free on the true events of history, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, Kevin, Leah Satilli, she's really built a beat here, huh? Doing extremist reporting. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I I guess if I were, yeah, if I were an executive at the BBC and I said, let's do a podcast about American extremism, who should we get? Well, backstory. This wasn't originally a BBC podcast. It was originally an American podcast to be done with a different company. And it ended up being picked up by the BBC. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this isn't necessarily for British audiences. Well, no, she has really shifted the the content focus. Because it's for the BBC. It is for the BBC. (laughs) When she explains that something happened on Boxing Day 1983, I'm like, that is not for middle America. Hmm. Because nobody here knows when Boxing Day is. They do in Canada? Yes, but it's... Isn't it December 26th? It's sometime after 
after Christmas. It's yeah. the day after Christmas. Day after Christmas. Yes. You give the servants the day off. <laughs> you know that, Laura. <laughs> I mean, if you watched uh, Downton Abbey, you yeah. know that, Kevin, right? Yeah. But I mean, other than Bill Moreland, that journalist who we are introduced here to. Again. Uh, again. I, I, you have to say at least Tilly is, you know. The expert in reporting on American extremism. Leah Satilli is the Madeline Barron yeah. of extremist podcasting yeah. reporting. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a particular niche, but I mean, you have to give it to her. Now, Laura Bricker, the timing of this podcast, obviously, the Timothy McVeigh Oklahoma City bombing is something that is, uh, I mean, he, we know, was inspired by the anniversary of the Waco siege. And we mm-hmm. hear now extremist groups sort of hearkening back to the good old days of Timothy McVeigh in their own rhetoric. How timely does this podcast feel to you? It feels timelier and timelier this week after watching the presidential debate this week uh, without getting too into that. But I think one of the sort of facts that really stood out to me was like, why are we hearing this now? Well, 2019 was the deadliest year for domestic terrorism since Timothy McVeigh. Mm. And, you know, we listened to The Remnant, which was the follow up to Bundyville, where we heard about the people that were like, wanted to like form their own state and like secede from the country. And they they were the people that were like, we have guns and we're prepared to use them if our boy Trump isn't reelected. And I feel like, I mean, I've been making a point to turn off the news, but anytime you turn on the news, I feel like we're seeing more and more of this. Originally you think, oh, it's just this Timothy McVeigh. And, and, you know, I was just a freshman in college when this happened and, Now, listening to it, you realize, no, there was like a whole network of people. And I feel like they're coming out again. And so I feel like this is super timely and it's terrifying. It's terrifying to listen to this and realize that it's like we've had, I mean, I I shouldn't say that. I was going to say it's like we've had like vampires hiding underground and they're coming into the light again. But that's sort of what it feels like to me at this point. Yeah. Now, Toby, you wrote me a note that you said uh, the age you were when the Oklahoma City bombing happened kind of creates your lens through which you listen to the podcast. What do you mean by that? I was I was working in DC, so I was in my like mid 20s, I guess. And uh the first 5 episodes, I really didn't learn very much. Like I already kind of knew that stuff and I I just read a lot about it when it came out. Like right after uh Oklahoma City for like the next couple years, maybe 3 years, there was a lot of journalism about the militia movement in particular. Mm. And it was interesting because I, w- I went back and I was checking a couple things and you know some of the old names popped up that I was familiar with, like John Trotman, I think his name is, who uh, was the uh, Montana militia guy who was sort of a media figure, like sort of, was sort of a spokesman for militias in general. And then the thing about Kingman, Arizona, uh, mm. I remember the coverage of Kingman and what sort of a, it seemed like a radical and somewhat dangerous town at the time. So anyway, through the first five episodes, which I which I enjoyed quite a bit in terms of, uh, I thought it was well told, uh, I had really good interviews, all this stuff. I mean, Leah's obviously great, but I, I kind of felt like I knew all that stuff already. Hmm. And I think part of it was just, I was at the, I was at an age where I was consuming a lot of media and this was one of the big things that was out there. Uh, I guess I wasn't watching a lot of TV, but I was reading a lot of magazine articles and stuff. I had a pretty long commute. So that that's kind of the lens through which I, which I see it, is that it's something I experienced, you know, fairly intensely 25 years ago or so. 
Now, I uh, remember this very well, too. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't remember, and I do, and I don't think that that in any way is a knock on the podcast. A lot of people either were very young or sort of missed this or sort of weren't as aware because they were doing other things in their life of sort of like the best stories around the Oklahoma City bombing. I loved the episode, Kevin, that went into Tim McVeigh's military career. I thought that was fascinating how we heard found, yes, yeah, right. We heard from his fellow soldier and the black guy who said he had all the same awards, had experienced all the same things as Timothy McVeigh, and had this incredibly clear memory of what he was like, what it was like to serve with him, what kind of soldier he was. And then that story about the disillusionment after coming home from the war and how that was a war over oil and that the soldiers were never really like given a framework through how to feel about the cause that they were fighting for. What did you think about that part of the podcast, Kevin? Well, I I actually enjoyed his personal story, as well as when he was talking about his interactions with McVeigh, because he's in a unit, right? You know, he's talking about, you know, McVeigh, and he's in a, an army unit, and the fact that he might throw a racial slur at another man in uniform, you know, it just was sort of like, you know, you'd feel like, hey, you know, you're supposed to have a, a different connection with this individual. Well, that's what he talks you about. He, he talks about how they would all share their care packages and even people yeah. who are very different from one another, different political beliefs, like there is something about that experience that, that ties you together. Yeah. Well, McVeigh would sit on top of a truck and clean his gun and would only hang out with white people and would use the N-word. Like, right, yeah. And they got into a fight. And he talks about how he punched talks him out. talks about how he punched him out. He called me the N-word and I reacted physically and it was quite bad. Uh, yeah. Did you get any punches in? I did. Back then, I was ashamed of it. I felt bad about it. You know, I'm supposed to represent these soldiers, and I'm a sergeant. But after he did what he did, you know? Yeah, good for him, right? Good for him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I guess, you know, t- why not be proud that you got in one lick yeah. with uh, with somebody like Timothy McVeigh? But, it's, I mean, I find, like, this podcast really interesting because it really is being pre- I mean, presented for the world. But a British audience... It forces uh, Leah Satilli to simplify our history here yeah. for a different audience. And it reminds me of like if someone is going to describe your family to a stranger <laughs> in front of you, right? Yeah. There's a, there is a truthful simplification right. that is enlightening to you yeah. how someone else sees this or somebody else, you know, how, how you have to present it to an it's outsider. It's distilled, yes. It's distilled. And, and while it's familiar, you're like, oh, it's presented in a certain way where it's it ends up giving you some different perspectives on it. That's it? how people see my crazy mother. Oh. <laughs> well, yes, but in this case, you know, it was it was it was good to you know sort of boil some of the important things down. And I learned a lot. I actually did learn a lot from those first couple of episodes. The way that they described the alt right, sort of this diagram of like where do people fall? You have the people who are the single issue extremists might be abortion or guns or something like that. Conservatives, yeah. Then you also have the anti-government people mm-hmm. and the racist people. We get to, we're going to get to that in the second half of the show with the right, next podcast. Right. There's also a, a component of religion that can be in there, too. Sort of the, the Christian extremists are sort of in there, too. Now, these episodes are only 14 minutes long. I'd love to know all of your thoughts about that. 
I love it. I find it very snackable way to digest a story like this. What do you think, Laura? I actually really liked it, too. I I felt like sometimes when you look at a new episode, especially when we're doing it the way that we do it, we're like, oh, we've got to review something. And you see like this 50 minute episode. You're like, oh, better set some time aside. This is great because they were 14 minute episodes. They were very snackable. You know, you got a lot of information in that 14 minutes. And if you wanted to keep going, you just did because they dropped them all in like big. Ch- so it was like, I think the first five dropped and then yep. a few more dropped. You know, it was easy to follow the story this way. But, you know, when you see 14 minutes, you think, boy, there can't be that much information there. But there really was. There yeah. was a lot of information. There was a lot of really interesting people. I loved that guy that was, he was like the expert, the journalist that was like the expert besides Leo Satilli, who was like telling all his war stories of all the different groups that he'd researched over the years. That Was that, a, wait, was he a police officer? You think the FBI guy? No, I'm thinking there was a journalist that was like the guy that she loved that was super interesting that yeah, had Bill all the great stories too. Bill Moore. Yeah, he was, he was super interesting. Now, Toby, today we are reviewing a podcast about right-wing extremists and Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. And we're also reviewing a podcast about the uprising of the skinhead neo-Nazi movement in the 80s and 90s in the Midwest. Similar themes, but very different stories, right, in many ways? Right. So I, I think the thing when, when you're looking at these two different groups is, you know, there's that whole threat assessment thing where it's, you know, intent plus capability equals threat or intent times capability or whatever. And it's it's just the scope of what this group of racists can do. They're, you know, being heavily armed. They talk in Kingman about how, you know, there's people just blowing stuff up. And that actually came up in this second season of Bundyville. Yeah, That's the remnant started began off. with that bombing, right? Right. You know, so there's this ability to deliver violence on like a vast scale, right? So they've got they've got the capability. And it, it, there is an interesting thing where they uh, where they're talking to I think the FBI guy who's saying yeah there's all these militias who talk a lot but the guys who are actually like I'm going to bomb a building like they kind of back away from that like that seems like too much they don't want to be associated with it so that's like the one thing I guess about the militias is that they're not quite as willing to actually take that big step it's more like they're kind of like waiting for the big moment when there's going to be a war or something, but they're not willing to really start it, Mm, I guess. mm. And that, so these people become who do have the intent to cause mass casualties. They become like these lone wolves to an extent. And, And they talk again about how Timothy McVeigh to an extent, he was a lone wolf. He wasn't associated with some particular militia or whatever like that, but people have a pretty strong feeling that there was some kind of network that was helping him, that it wasn't something that he could have pulled off by himself. Yeah. So anyway, I think when we go and we talk about the skinheads, like the, the, the scope of that is much smaller. I mean, they're, they're still freaking reprehensible and awful. And the fact that it's small in scope is not really a whole huge mitigating factor. But when you're taking a look at like what kind of threat they actually are. Yeah. Although I think that the skinhead podcast is turning in that direction because we talk about the boots to suits. Right. And like um, I think that that connection is happening in the episode we haven't yet heard of motive. I think that's the turn it's taking. Right. We're going to be talking mm-hmm. about yeah. the Charlottesville rally. We're going to be talking about connections to the uh, normalization of white supremacy that these same people have now done. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that when we talk 
talk in the next half of the show. Um, Kevin, what do you think of these threads that Leah Satilli pulls together? Toby was just mentioning the networks of support that Timothy McVeigh had, the phone call he made to, was it Elohim City? Yes. Uh, and then we hear some reporting around that. What do you think of those threads? The farm... That place, all these people yeah. around the country who sort of knew something was going to happen. Well, I mean, the great thing with, you know, Leah Tilly is remember when you were in college and you had like an English class or you had like a history class and you wrote a term paper. Like a really good one. Really good one. Yeah. And then you have an English class and you have to write a term paper. And you're like, oh, this would be really, <laughs> you just repurpose it. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. That's cheating. Yeah. Well, she doesn't do that, but she she's certainly familiar with the material, which, and you know, we've already talked about. She's perfect for this. But she's not just saying, okay, we're going to do a little history lesson here. You know, it's not bunga bunga. Yeah. She decided that she wants to advance the story. So that makes not just one, but two connections between Elohim City and the Oklahoma City bombing. The first connection is this phone call McVeigh made to Elohim City, the reason we're looking into this place. And now we've been told there's a second connection, Millar's relationship with Snell who wanted to bomb the Murrah building way before McVeigh. So after getting several episodes, several 14-minute episodes of, you know, here's where we were and here's what happened on a different April 19th, we get to this whole story of tracing Timothy McVeigh's physical journey to Oklahoma City and that it's more significant than maybe we originally thought. And, uh, yeah, I like the idea of, you know, digging in on that and trying to talk to new people and find out more because it's not insignificant. She, at some point, she says, you know, the more we pull on these threads, we find, you know, there are fewer people involved, hmm. right? But the thing that you, you learn, and maybe Toby touched on this in a way, is that it doesn't matter what the percentage is of extremists. It doesn't matter that you have uh, a, you know, a loose militia of 200 people and 199 of them don't actually want to go and set off a bomb. It's the one who does, hmm. right? And it doesn't matter if it's one out of 20 or one out of 1,000. It's still one, right? And it's that's who Timothy McVeigh was, him and his two partners, right? But it, it's disconcerting that there's a movement, but it's more of a threat that there is somebody there who will take that next step. Were you surprised to hear that, what is it, 2% of Americans own 90% of America's guns? Yeah, I mean, I guess... I mean, that was interesting. Yeah. That was an interesting fact. Because it is an interesting statistical are, fact. Right. We are right. told that we are a gun culture, that Americans are obsessed with guns, that, you know, but, you know, I know a lot of people who have maybe one, maybe two, if they hunt, if they have, you know, one for, but the idea that, like, yeah. this is this, this tiny part of the population where you they own 500 guns, and it's like, yeah. that is 90% of the guns that are owned in America are by this a big, very small amount of people. It's it's like wealth in America. It is. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I kept thinking of. It's like, it's like the, it's, it's yeah. just like wealth. It's like the 1%. There, right. There are people that own a weapon for target shooting or for home defense or because they're collectors and those aren't the people that the government cares about yeah it's it's the, the one guy yeah. who right who's right why do you need you're not really a collector if you've got a whole bunch of the same autom- gun yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know it, um, yeah now Lara, one thing i wanted to talk to you about because i really love this part of the podcast and i was when i was listening to it i was thinking i bet Lara likes this too um the podcast opens with a very human story from the murrow building uh we hear from the mm-hmm. guy who worked there he talks about one of his friends who died and how that was the guy who always could find the sheet cake whenever it was someone's birthday in the office. In an instant, I lost 116 friends and co-workers. 
One of them, I'll tell you real quick, his name was Mike Weaver. He worked on the eighth floor. Funny, whenever we had a birthday or we had cake or something, Mike always showed up. He would always find cake somewhere in the building. They were good people. And it was just so normal and just so every day, the idea that you could just like work with people and know them and see them every single day. And then this act of terror could kill all of them. And plus all the kids, of course, who were in the daycare, which is, you know, one of the most tragic parts of the Oklahoma City bombing story. What did you think of the way that Leah unwrapped that opening of the podcast? Well, I think it was good to start with that because obviously as it went on, we went more into this sort of anti-government movement, Timothy McVeigh traveling around the country, doing his road trip, finding places where apparently it was totally cool for people to just set off explosives in this town. Yeah. So that's where we're going. But I think it's important to start with like, who did this affect? Here's the people that were there when this happened. We have the guy who was like buried in the rubble talking about getting out. The guy that was, you just referenced, who was working there. The FBI agent who responded. The man who was working at the restaurant who immediately knew this is a bomb because I've come from a country where that's commonplace. And then... I think it was also important to start that way because then that sort of segued into this stereotype over, oh, these must be like Muslim terrorists or Mm. Middle Eastern terrorists, when in fact, no, it's people in our own country. It's Mm -hmm. white terrorists. It's white militia. So I think, you know, putting that human face on it, it's it's hard it's you know, it's easy to go down this this road of investigating who Timothy McVeigh was and this larger movement, but there are people that are at the heart of this. And I think that that was a really good place to start, especially for people that maybe weren't up to speed with the case. Kind of, I mean, that seemed like a logical spot to sort of kick off this story. No, I agree. And, you know, current threat assessments and past threat assessments are that the largest threat to our national security is the militias that are right here at home. And I think this podcast really drives it home. Lara Bricker, uh, I think it's time to do what we do. I'm going to start with you. Do you think our listeners should check out the new podcast, Two Minutes Past Nine, from Leah Satilli and the BBC? Lara Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down for you for Two Minutes Past Nine? Um, Well, you can hear my poor dog barking like crazy in the background. I apologize for that. Um, Buddy gives it a couple barks up. So, yeah, I would (laughs) he's all over it. Buddy denounces white supremacy. Yeah. See how easy that is? See how easy that is, buddy? Yep. It's a dog whistle. Buddy is equal opportunity. So, yeah, I would say thumbs up. I I liked that we had short episodes, but they were packed full of information. It was something that I think I mentioned earlier. I was in college when this happened. Um, My freshman year roommate actually had lived in Oklahoma City the year before she came to college. So I remember this happening because we were getting all sorts of calls from the school newspaper. They they went through like the list of like who was from this area and started calling them. And I just think that this was really well done. I think it's important to listen to stories like this, especially now, given the current climate of the country and what's happening in the country. It's not easy to listen to, but it's important to know what's going on and what's out there. And I think that Leah is clearly cementing her role as the expert in this field, reporting on these types of groups. And so I'd say big thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for two minutes past nine? Yeah, I give it a, I give it a big thumbs up. Uh, Leah's great on this subject. You know, in some ways, McVeigh is really an opportunity for her to continue looking at sort of this widely dispersed, sort of loosely affiliated subculture in the U.S. And 
She's, she's got all the perspective. I think it's probably hard to do a bunch of really uh, concise yet informative episodes like she does. I don't know if I'd want all podcasts to be like this, but it was fine for this one. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I give it a big thumbs up. I was looking forward to listening to it and it lived up to it. Kevin Flint. Thumbs up for me. Leah Satilli is uh, a fantastic journalist and I would probably you know listen to just about anything that Same. she did. Same. You know, one of the things that sort of um, bothers me about true crime podcasts and movies and TV shows is when promotionally they're positioned as horror stories. Meaning you should be afraid as opposed to this is a look into an investigation and it's journalistic and it's, you know, whatever. The the thing is, you listener ought to be afraid because there's a serial killer out there who's coming for you next. Um, This makes me afraid. Yeah. This stuff makes me afraid. I can, I, I, there were things, there were quotes from Bundyville from people she interviewed that have stayed with me for years. Year, year, two years now since that first one came out. It's a really important story. You know, it it deserves some attention. Hey, they're fourteen minute episodes. You're right. You can zip through them. I'd love to know why that is. Hmm. I like to think that it's probably some organization. It's it's purposeful. I have a theory. You have a theory. Okay. Well, you can do it in your review, Rebecca. Anyway, uh, yeah, there is, while this is a, you know, look back 25 years at the Oklahoma City bombing, there really is a through line from there right up to people who won't wear a mask at the grocery store, but they will when they bring their uh, long gun to the state capitol. Yeah. I got to tell you, there are um, very few podcasters that I can tell you I will listen to anything they make on the day that it drops. Mm-hmm. Dan Taberski is one of them. Madeline Barron is one of them. Sarah Koenig is one of them. Leah Satilli, for me, is one of those podcasters. I love, love her reporting. She should be sending us a box of fucking chocolates. <laughs> I love her delivery of her reporting, and I love that she has been reporting consistently on what I think is one of the most important subjects of our time. And it has been for a long time. It was fringe, but it has never gone away. And if you follow the threads of Leah's reporting, she has explained to us in this like compendium of stories that she's done why it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away because the government made the choice to not shut it down. And this is yet another example of sort of the privilege that these fringe groups enjoy in America. And it is terrifying. As you said, Kevin, I think about Bundyville and the Remnant all the time. There are quotes in this podcast that just are chilling. I love this podcast. I give it a hearty thumbs up. Do you want to hear my theory about why it's each episode exactly 14 minutes? Sure. I would not be surprised if the BBC didn't also include this as part of a show, a radio program. A radio, yeah, yeah, the, BB- the, the BBC is very modular eyes. Like they, they, yeah, like, that was, yeah. yeah, the World Service always puts out these things in like these five-minute segments, 12-minute segments, and they're always the same. So I wouldn't be surprised that this was also broadcasting I, somewhere. I did see in the feed there looks to be a couple of uh, maybe a compendium of yeah. some because there's like an hour long episode yeah. which I think well, is maybe four times fourteen minutes is get, gets you there with breaks. Yeah, sure. Anyway, I love 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 two minutes past nine. Huge thumbs up for me. I recommend that everybody listen to it. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 
we've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Moving on. <laughs> nice, nice. We're not cutting that. Coming up on today's Patreon After Show, available right now in your podcast feed if you subscribe at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Man, do we have a special treat for you. Are you ready to hear what it is, Kevin? Tell me. We are going to make Laura and Toby give their answers to one of the best questions we have ever received on Married with Podcast, which oh. is about a listener who says her friend is moving in on her wife by imitating everything she does, including collecting Sasquatch memorabilia. We are going to let Lara and Toby give their theories as to what is going on in that situation on today's Crime Writers on After Show. When we recorded this uh, Married with Podcast, Kevin, I just yeah. kept thinking like, I want to know what other people think about this. I want to know what other people think about this. Well, if you want to know what Rebecca and I thought about it, you could uh, listen to our Mary with Podcast in yep. Patreon. And also, Laura Bricker's back with another episode of Leave it to Bricker, Laura Bricker's Animal Adventures. <laughs> of course. What else would they be <laughs> yeah. besides Animal Adventures? That's all she has is adventurous animals. We are someday going to make an earnest podcast about your animal detective, Relar. We are. Oh, yeah. No. And this, this is like sort of a teaser of that because I had three different animal mysteries in this episode. So tune in. Also, by the way, if you tune into Mary with Podcast, you'll hear about one of my animal adventures that happened in our very house. <laughs> Amphibious. Where a frog jumped out of a watering can into my oh face my God. as I was watering the plants in my home. And then Kevin spent an hour hunting the frog under our sofa. I take back what he said about true crime and horror. Oh, my God. I That's almost burnt the house down. I swear to God. Kevin, at one point, he couldn't find the frog. And he was like, well, I guess I guess we're just not going to get it. And I was like, nope, we are. I will not be sitting here watching TV and have this frog jump out from under the sofa in the middle of watching Netflix. Anyway, we caught the frog. It all worked out fine. But you can hear more about that at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Kevin, before we move on, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Yes, our Patreon patron saints are Amanda Moore and Miriam Krajewski. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you so much for supporting us, guys. And if you want to join our growing community on Patreon, people who get all the extra content that we make, just head on over again to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And thank you. All right. Moving on to our second review. Putting on the jacket and the boots like felt glamorous. I felt like a different person because before then I was wearing, you know, like Velcro Keds and, you know, my mom had me in a bowl haircut and I, you know, like I was a kid and then all of a sudden I wasn't. Former neo-Nazi Christian Picciolini wasn't born into the movement. He was drawn in by Aryan propaganda. 
and surprisingly, punk rock music. More than anything, it was the music that hooked Christian into the movement. I'd already been kind of into punk rock or kind of aggressive music before that. And when I first heard, you know, oi or white power music, it kind of took it to another level. Music was the gateway for me. In season three of Motive from WBEZ, host Odette Youssef explores how after a period of decline, the white supremacist movement recruited a new generation of followers. They did it by co-opting the style and trappings of an otherwise apolitical punk subculture known as skinheads. Have you heard about this guy, uh, Martel? He's got this thing called romantic violence. And we're like, no, what's that? And it's like, he, he puts out these weird flyers and he's selling these, these tapes. He's a, a racist and he is calling himself a skinhead. Motive explores the rise in the 80s of Chicago's neo-Nazi skinhead movement, talking with those inside the hate group and those who left it. It also reveals the surprising story of all the music lovers, unprepared for their anti-establishment identities to be forever hijacked by fascists. The host also attempts to track down the mysterious figure who radicalized the young Nazis, then drifted out of sight. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points and spoilers for Motive, so if you don't want to hear them, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Toby Ball, I have a question for you. Okay. When I was first listening to this podcast, and even when I've like had other pop culture things about skinheads sort of come across my you know feed and my TV or whatever, part of me, because I, I'm just for disclosure, I was born 1973, so I was a kid in the 80s. I graduated high school in 1991. Part of me was like, you know, I think I was friends with some skinheads like in, in junior high and high school. Was I actually friends with Nazis? <laughs> and then I'm like, no, that couldn't be because like I remember there was a black kid and there was a Korean kid and like they liked skateboards and they like listened to Public Image Unlimited and like Sex Pistols and stuff. Toby, were you aware of this whole co-opting of skinheads who were actually punk music fans, counterculture fans by neo-Nazis? Or did, did you just always relate being a skinhead to being a racist? So, no. Uh, as far as skinheads meaning racist? Yeah. I mean, I think that came later. Yeah, it did. Because um, I think there was, I mean, there was a different kinds of skinheads. I remember like straight edge skinheads who, you know, didn't drink or do any drugs and you know, there were anti-racist skinheads. And I, you know, I think it was more of a sort of a punk thing uh, at the time. But I do think that once extremists or, or racists get a hold of a symbol, and in this case, you know, the, the shaved head, then it becomes really hard for it to be anything other than a symbol for racism. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just think... At that point, there's so much possibility for you to be mistaken mm. as a racist by being a skinhead that I think that's sort of people's assumptions almost. Um, yeah, Kevin's always lamenting when things get taken away from him and get turned into racist stuff. He's oh, like, the oh, circle game. White polo shirts. You can't wear those anymore. Tiki torches. Pepe the Frog was yeah. a, was like one of the big ones where I, I don't think he originally started off with any kind of racist nope, connotation, right. but they snag him turn Pepe into a racist. And now it's like, I mean, that's, that's what he's a symbol for. You see Pepe, you're like, Oh shit. Yep. That, that's what that's all about. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, and, and they do a good job of talking about this, that there, there were all kinds of like skinheads were not, you know, necessarily racist and racist was just sort of a subgroup of skinheads at one point, but then eventually 
that became sort of the dominant image of a of a skinhead. Yeah, and when I listen to this podcast, I got to tell you, I was very relieved to realize that my high school friends were not actually Nazis <laughs> because I was like, part of me was like, oh, I mean, I don't maybe I'm remembering this wrong, Kevin. For our younger listeners, do you want to explain your comment about the Circle game? Because every oh. time you bring this up, I'm always like, poor Kevin, your favorite high school prank has been ruined by. I racists. know, right? So it's obviously it's a very small thing, but. Um, the circle game was where you make like this okay sign, <laughs> but you put it, you're supposed to like, you know, very casually have it sort of below your waist, like down no, by no. your head. And it's sort of, it's a game, it's a version of made you look. And if you do that, and then all of a sudden, the white supremacists steal that as a sign, just like <laughs> they stole tiki torches. And yeah. the fact that the tiki torch company like went on Twitter to have to like denounce this and separate themselves, it's a real issue that all that, like I think Toby put it very well that if if it gets co-opted it's hard to reclaim it yeah and so I'm the kind of guy who n- never knew that there was I just thought skinheads were neo-nazis and the first episode was really interesting because we hear about the hate of crate yeah, the crate, crate, crate of hate, hate excuse yeah. me I'm in Christian Picciolini's living room he's rooting through a big box on the floor it's like a time capsule from his years as a racist skinhead yeah, this is the hate crate. Uh, it is uh, a lot of garbage. Uh, wait, wait. Would you keep that? I would not. I wouldn't. Uh, I keep my creative hate shit. Well, I th- I think it's interesting because I think he needs to yeah. for for reasons maybe we can get into later. But once they started, at, episode two started with a quote: "The skinhead movement has no basis or foundation in racism whatsoever. It's the exact opposite." I've had this conversation, I can't even count how many times in the 30 years I've been involved (laughs) in this scene. I was like, fuck you, bullshit. (laughs) You sound like one of those, no, it's about, you know, it's about the white culture. The Civil War was about states' rights. The fact that he was actually saying, (laughs) no, 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 it was like, it was was essentially punk rock, but we took the mohawk and we shaved it down. And that's what it was for us for a long time. And there were a lot of black skinheads. I did not, yeah, yeah, when he said... said there were black skinheads and Jewish skinheads. I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) How could that be? And they explained it. It was like, wow. Because one of the things I like about storytelling is if you can't tell me something new, tell me something I didn't know. And I didn't know that. And that part was... It was very interesting to me. Of course, the other important stuff about, you know, neo-Nazis is really the focus of this podcast. Yeah. But for me, I just got to say, wow, that was really enlightening. And it is a cautionary tale yeah. about symbolism and how easy it is to all of a sudden get co-opted into shit like that. Right. Now, Laura, a huge part of this movement, the skinhead movement, that sort of pre, you know, co-opted by Nazis skinhead movement was really just rebellious teenagers, you know, right? Kids who had issues with their parents. Yeah, emo. Emo. Not- oh, emo something. <laughs> emo. Those emu teenagers. Oh. <laughs> Our Australian <laughs> listeners. Give a shit for saying you know, emu. They admonished us on yes. social media for not saying emu. Yes, emu. It's e- emo. Emo. It's emo. No, it's emo. <laughs> no, that's the music. No, as I know. Oh, fuck. It's, it's, it's kids that we would maybe call emo now. But kids who are goth or something like that. It was a version. Of that. Kids yeah. who uh, maybe like didn't do great in school. Kids who you know had some sort of rebellious phase, the, the same way we all did, but they sort of did it yeah. this way. Yeah. What did you think of that? Just hearing about you know it was a, there was a great example in the podcast of a girl who had been like you know popular and happy, and then just sort of made a left turn and decided to yeah. shave her head and become a skinhead. What it's do you think the about most that? extreme thing. She shaved her mohawk, I think. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it was it was kind of scary listening to it because, you know, the setup was good as they talked about sort of how, you know, it's the 80s and after the civil rights movement, it seemed like, you know, the skinhead sort of white supremacist movement was was, you know, dying out. But what was it's just I think as a parent of a teenager, it's always scary when you listen to something like this and you hear, you know, teenagers that sound like they're just sort of naturally rebelling against their parents and the rules and the norms, you know, they want freedom, they want independence. They nobody understands them. And it's this group that's sort of easily manipulated, I think, into finding a place where they do feel like they belong, where they do feel like people are listening to them and listening to how these teenagers were recruited. And it really added new life to this white supremacy movement, which seemed to be dying out at that point. And how it how it grew from that was for me it was it was terrifying like i said anytime as a parent i hear something like this i'm like oh crap could my kid end up getting roped into something like this just because it sounds in the beginning like so many of these kids were like kids you know uh, yeah. you know it didn't sound like they started out going down this this path so i think that was really enlightening to listen to the answer is yes, Laura. Not your kid in particular, but kids are still getting roped into this through online forums like 4chan, right, Parler. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like, easier now. It's much easier now. You don't have to actually approach a kid in, like Christian Picciolini in an alley and say, hey, kid, that joint will rot your brain. Why don't you come join my neo-Nazi group? You don't need to do that anymore. You just need to like hang out on YouTube and in the comments section and, and you can... Find a kid to pull in and make him feel like they're family. Because isn't that very much what it's about, Toby? That sort of like teenage longing to belong. I mean, they really talk about that in the podcast. I mean, everything that these kids had in common, the one thing besides loving music and all that stuff was they didn't feel like they belonged into in anywhere else and that this group just embraced them with open arms. And then the white supremacists in particular even embraced the rejects from the other skinhead groups. Right. Yeah. Cause I, you know, when I think about skinheads, like as I, as I first sort of understood them, it was more like the people who, who would see like the guys in class action park, like the long hair guys with it and be like, those guys are a bunch of fucking assholes. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't want to deal with that. And, and so you'd have your own, your own thing going on. But yeah. And I, and I don't know, like, it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing, right. In that Picciolini and then uh, Clark Martell, you know, they're going after these kids who are so freaking young, yeah. you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds and, and basically trying to recruit them and bring them into the whole race, racist thing. It seems almost like it's like something you can put on and take off again at that age. It's just like something you do to belong without necessarily really buying into the whole philosophy. Because, I mean, it does with that one woman whose name I'm not going to be able to remember, but she, you know, she's like hanging out with, with Clark in that group. And then she decides she's not going to be a racist anymore. She's going to be an anti-racist and she has a, a black boyfriend and, and then Clark like shows up to her apartment and, and she thinks he's going to kill her. So it, it is kind of a, it's a strange thing in that you're kind of getting these people who you don't necessarily know whether they're going to be super devoted to your cause and you only have a few of them at a time anyway. So it's like this, it's a very kind of strange way of going about it. And I, I, I guess she didn't, she kind of described it without really talking about how that ended up working out in terms of sort of a longevity thing, or uh, it seems to me that it was more there were a few individuals and there was this sort of changing group that would surround them 
but that but that there was a very 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 small core mm. and then people who kind of came and went and you know would age out of it or whatever yeah well we know that clark was kind of the central recruiter of it he was the patient zero of the neo-nazi skinhead movement the podcast calls him that i think that's a very effective uh description and then you know he ends up getting the notice of prominent white supremacists around the country who've been around for a while they're like hey Mm -hmm. let's hitch our wagon to these young people who are walking around in doc martens and making a lot of noise kevin what were you gonna say i'm really interested in christian's story I, i thought that the first episode was really enlightening especially when you know that this is someone who sort of has renounced his past actions and i just sort of wonder how does one atone for that yeah i haven't listened to that in many many years and i can tell you uh, that I'm physically ill. I had a physical reaction. Like I suddenly started to sweat when I heard that. Um, and it was very embarrassing and shameful for me to hear the things that I said. And so one of the reasons why I think like he keeps the crate, you know, is part of some educational process. He, he agreed to talk to Odette because, you know, this is his thing now is to recognize and own up to it even though he says he's ashamed and embarrassed and i you know i, I believe him the you name know? of his band by the way was the final solution sure yeah i mean yeah. Th- looking insane. back insane and they played yeah. in germany which is illegal and insane insane so it's how do you how do you end up walking away from that yeah. especially like when you if you buy the idea that he's sincere about his his uh, regret what does one do you know in order to to atone for that uh, I don't know. Hmm. Maybe it's something like this. It's telling the story. It's warning parents and and others and and trying to, you know, steer people away. But are you redeemable? I think that's a question is, are you redeemable? Because, I mean, you can maybe reach people who other people who've never experienced this wouldn't be able to reach. That's true. Yeah. But we don't talk that way about people who commit other kinds of crimes and think other ways. Like, we don't think of um, people who have sexually assaulted women as having a redemption arc, right? I don't do that anymore. I used to think it was okay to do that, and I don't anymore. We still keep them, like, on the side of, like, stay the fuck away from me, right? right. Yep. And or at least I do. I mean, I can't speak for everyone. The world, yeah. Right. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but it is interesting, because, and I think that they're going to tackle that in future episodes, which I think is great, because he is kind of an unreliable narrator in many ways. You know, he was deeply involved in this. He was the lead singer of a Nazi band who went to Germany and performed an illegal concert and sang songs with the N-word and about Jews and was like pro-Holocaust. Like, All the hits. It was, I mean, it was disgusting. And they make him listen to it on the podcast, which I yeah. actually really appreciated when they did that. Well, you know, in, in other contexts, so like I think he's an apostate, right? And mm. I think apostate narratives are always kind of viewed sort of suspiciously. And this is like sort of an extreme, like an extreme example. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, you know, and a lot of times it's like, like somebody will like leave the Mormon church or whatever. Yeah. They'll write some, some book like slamming Mormons. But, and, and this is an extreme example because it's an extreme ideology that he left. And I don't think there's a whole lot of people who are going to be like, oh man, you're being so hard on the racists. Um, <laughs> Cut him a break. <laughs> Listen, Toby, he had to get rid of his baseball cards to get the Nazi flag for crying out. Like Leah Remini and the Scientologist. I was thinking of that too. But but I do think, and I, and I think it's, it's a good move uh, of the podcast in, in the next episode. I'm looking forward to listening to it 
to sort of be like Kevin was saying, it's like, what, what, what's, what's the motive here? Like, what are you trying to do? Like there, there's, there's other things you could also do. Like you could be on the streets talking to racists. I mean, maybe he's doing that too. I don't know. Interrogate like a Jehovah's his witness, like walking around, knocking on doors. Excuse me. Are you racist? <laughs> <laughs> Have you considered dabbling in racism? <laughs> no, it's like the gang guys though. You know, yeah, we get right. the, the former gang guys the and they come, straight. they sit down yeah. with, with other gang members are like, look, there's another way or, or these are the mistakes I made and that totally screwed me over and you don't want to do. So I don't, I mean, maybe he's doing that too, but I do think in order for him to come across as being somebody that you trust and who's reliable, I think he does, there needs to be a little bit more interrogation of what his motives are, what he thinks he's going to gain out of this. Because I think most of the other people who are, who are talking are either activists who are working against it are pretty straightforward about how I'm a racist and I was then and I still am. And this is what happened like uh, Metzger mm. and, or there are people who were involved in it and had something terrible happen to him. But he's the one person who's like, I left, I decided to leave based on sort of an ideological change of heart, which by the way, had nothing to do with like racism, looking at beating up, <laughs> You know, people who aren't white. Instead, it was like, why are all these white people like destroying all this white property? That doesn't make any sense to me. Right, right. Um, So anyway. No, you're totally right. I think it's really great that the podcast is asking that question. We cannot talk about this podcast and this story without talking about a character that has sprung up a couple of times on this podcast in the last few months. Our old friend, my frenemy, my favorite frenemy, lover and hater, Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) I went, whoa. I think I'm exposing them. I think I'm showing them and their vitriol and their dark side and trying to get them to see a different point of view. And they are using me. Lara Bricker, thoughts on this Oprah Winfrey episode, which, by the way, I remember watching when it was on. It oh, was, wow. I do. I totally remember it. I remember the Joey Buttafuoco episode. I remember the skinhead episode. I remember her Will in the Wagon of Fat episode. I remember all the classic <laughs> Oprah Winfrey episodes. Hunt, the OJ verdict episode. Podcast. I remember all of them. I watched yeah. all of them. Laura, thoughts about this insane idea that Oprah and her producers had that they could bring on an audience and stage full of skinheads and actual Nazis and racists, along with activists, anti-racists, and like just well-meaning people who just showed up to see the Oprah Winfrey show. Thoughts, Lara Bricker? WTF. Like, <laughs> why would you think this is a good idea? Hmm. You are a black woman. These people are, this is what they're known for. They're clearly racist. I, but you know what? My, my first sort of thought when I heard this was, again, Oprah? We just talked about this with yep. the secret per- like she like she gives these these groups like this credibility by coming on yep. her show. And I'm like, why are you giving them a platform for this? Why are you inviting these people on there? There are so many other shows you could have done to sort of combat white supremacy and this movement. Like, why would you think this is actually going to work out? You get a swastika and you get a swastika. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? But the fact that... I saw that that one too. (laughs) Yeah, it just, as I was listening to it, I was reminded, like, I didn't watch it obviously as much as you did, Rebecca, but I was reminded of this... period of time where Oprah was... The, Listen, it was on after was, General Hospital. I couldn't yeah, help it. Right. 
you know, this was it. Oprah, like, and, and, and everybody was watching and, and this was before the magazine and the book club and everything. This was the early days, but it just, what would possess you to do something like this? But I thought it was really interesting that not only did they get clips of the show, which again, like we've talked about this in the past, like the royalties for that, but they actually talked to her now, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I thought that was from something else. Yeah. WBEZ also did the, is it Becoming Oprah? Becoming Oprah, yeah. And they, and, they had a lot of tape of her that they didn't yeah. use in Becoming Oprah and they yeah. were able to reuse it, yeah. So I was like, yeah, fantastic repurposing of the they tape. they had her permission. Okay. It's it's like the term paper thing again, Kevin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but to answer your question, Laura, I think it's because of her hubris. And she acknowledges this. And I think good on her for realizing, I can't do that. That was a bad idea. <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. And I'm going to take my show in a different direction. And I think... For everyone involved, that was a really good decision. I think she also uh, thought that she... Well, so, okay. Listen, I don't think she took her show in a less harmful direction. I don't. Oprah Winfrey Show was very harmful on many, many levels. I watched it, all of it, and I would again. Not going to lie. But it is harmful on many levels. I think it was part hubris, and I think it was partly that she... And I think she acknowledges this, too. Part of the hubris was also, I am the most successful black woman in the world. And I'm going to sort of rub it in these little Nazis' faces. Uh, we don't know how It powerful. didn't work. We don't know where she was she in was her still, art. She was still... Was she still competing with she Phil Donahue? She national show. Yeah. Yes. She was definitely the most successful I, yeah, black Yeah, I don't, I don't recall what year this was. This was like late 80s, Yeah, though, right? she was still the yeah. most successful black oh, I, woman yeah, entertainer I, in America. Like, she had a platform. She used it for a lot of shitty stuff. This was maybe the worst. Because you remember when we talked about trial by media, at this point, there is a huge, there's a saturation of these kinds of shows that get very confrontational. Yeah. And where she might have just been dipping her toe in here. I mean, I would say. This is is what what she represents. That that happened. She realized it was a bad experience. She didn't want to touch anything like that. And she was going to go in a different direction. Yeah. And, you know, all the Dr. Phil's and Dr. Oz's aside, which came later. She at least she in made her Dr. vision, Phil and Dr. she liked to think that she, you know, had uh, shows that focused on other things. And oh, the Oprah show is very different than Jerry Springer and all the right. other ones. But this was the same era where she had the Joey Botafuco episode. Okay. Where it was like, did he or didn't he do it? And that was the famous episode where it was like, if he looks like a duck and walks like a duck, Mary Jo, he's a duck. Like it was it was crazy. OK, but she never had a fucking neo-Nazi on again, right? <laughs> no more racist, but plenty of charlatans, I think. Exactly. OK, yeah. So. So I, I, I just, you know, do the do the math. Like, how many people are watching your show? Even if a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of it watches it, it's be like, oh, these guys really kind of got it going on. And look into it. I mean, it's just a recruiting tool. Yeah. I mean, it's this tiny, tiny movement that you're giving all these viewers. And even if the vast, vast majority are disgusted, it's still a recruiting tool for the ones who aren't. Absolutely. And, and it's just to think any other way it's just, it's naive. I, I, I'm sorry. I, it's just, you got to understand that no matter how strong your argument is and how sort of on the face of it wrong things are, there's going to be some tiny percent that thinks it's awesome. That's right. And if you're if you're in the broadcasting business and you don't have that in mind, like you're just not doing your job. Yeah. That being said, Oprah, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, I still love you, even though she always listens. I think you made a lot of mistakes on your show. <laughs> All right. Didn't you know that the Oprah in our uh, Patreon mm. is that Oprah? Oh, really? It's yeah. Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. There's like Lee Bardugo mm-hmm. and Oprah Winfrey and Madeline Barron. Madeline Barron. Yeah. 
and Stephen King, who I think is Steve King. I don't know. <laughs> Steve King from Iowa? No. Yeah. Speaking of racist. One. Different one, different one. All right. I think we should do what we do. Let our listeners know, should they check out Motive? It's season three from WBEZ. It's all about skinheads and the surprising backstory. I promise you'll learn something you perhaps didn't know. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this season of Motive? Yeah, I would say thumbs up. I mean, both of our things that we reviewed this week were difficult to listen to, but also very important to listen to, especially given the current climate of the country and what's going on. And, you know, for me, I was going in, I guess I always just assumed the skinheads were Nazi racist. And I was like, what? There were black skinheads and Jewish skinheads. It was very, so it was informative. It had a lot of good information. It had a lot of good voices. It's not something that's easy to listen to. They give a huge disclaimer at the beginning of all of the things that might be, you know, upsetting to listen to. They use the N word in some songs. It's not easy listening. But overall, I I feel like if you are interested in what's going on in the world right now, you really should listen to this podcast. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Motive Season 3? So in my mind, it's tough to be reviewed in the same episode. That's something Leah Sotilli does. But I tell you, I thought this totally held up. I mean, I, I think it's a rare crime writers on where I'm I'm very enthusiastic about both uh, things that we reviewed. I, I, I thought it was super interesting. I'm definitely going to listen to the rest of it. So uh, a hearty thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Well, you don't have to be a captain of woke cynicism to realize the importance of both of these podcasts. This is a good one. Thumbs up. Yeah, I was really, I mean, I was surprised about what I learned about you know, neo-Nazis. First, I was really taken aback because Motive has been a strong true crime podcast. And this isn't a traditional true crime story, but it's a great investigation. And even if you just listen to the first episode, it's very enlightening. And the whole idea that what we associate with, you know, the modern neo-Nazi movement, I mean, this was before Kiki Torches, uh, the skinhead look, that there were skinheads who were just musicians that's just so crazy Hmm. and when you realize just how dangerous it was that co-opting of a symbol could happen to anything anywhere and that you're just powerless to stop it a really interesting look and um again i i'm gonna listen to the rest of it thumbs up yeah i'm gonna listen to the rest of it too i loved motive season three i love odette youssef she's a great host uh the writing is outstanding by the way we didn't even talk about the production at all the podcast is beautifully made beautifully mixed wbez is a great public radio station they make great stuff and that certainly shows in motive i'm a big big fan of this podcast i listened to it all of it i took a super long hike and listened to the whole thing as a binge and it's not always easy to listen to like five you know episodes it ended up being like two plus hours of content about a really heady topic but it was dare i say like very entertaining too it was really well done the voices are great uh really rich reporting in-depth look at the history and the context of the time i really loved it so big thumbs up for me for motive season three reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
We've seen all the video call fails by now, the mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Ireland's Supreme Court has dealt a blow to footlong lovers on the Emerald Isle. Mm. The panel says that the bread in Subway sandwiches contain too much sugar to meet the legal definition of, quote, bread. <laughs> the distinction is important because bread is considered a staple and exempt from the value added tax. But it has to contain the proper ratio of dough to other ingredients or it will be taxed like other bakery products like cakes, biscuits, and croissants. Garlic bread and onion bread are also taxed in Ireland. Now, this isn't an inconsequential decision. Shop owners have been appealing the case for 15 years, saying they should pay no tax on bread in their hot sandwiches. But they didn't convince the judges, and now it's going to cost them... A lot of lettuce. Mm. A lot of bread, right? A lot of cabbage. (laughs) So, panel, here's my question for you. Who knew judges could rule on the validity of food products? What other dubious culinary claim should the high court in Ireland investigate? Laura Bricker, what do you think? I'm just going to say beyond meat. That is... <laughs> who, no. Why? No. I, I, I have so many things I have to say about the beyond meat. If you're a vegetarian, you don't need to eat some like crazy chemically manufactured stuff. It's not meat. It's not. Yeah. It's not meat. Eat a black bean burger for crying out loud. So I think in Ireland, they would totally support me in this endeavor. Toby Ball, what do you think? What other dubious culinary claim should this high court investigate? I'm not an expert in Irish cuisine, Mm. uh, (laughs) but just from the British Isles, I would, you know, I've heard that some of the bangers don't have as much bang as they're supposed to have. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, what do you think? I think they should be investigating Laura Bricker's frozen moose meat chili. Oh. <laughs> that is just dangerous, man. Mm, dangerous. Yeah. I have thought. Yeah. Shamrock shakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are I don't know if that right. qualifies as food. Yeah. We should probably end it on that That's note. That's racist, Rebecca. <laughs> but before we do, you did do it in your Irish accent. What's well, racist, Rebecca? Uh, that's not Irish either. I, come on. All right. <laughs> we should probably end it on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> we have something we've never had before this week. Again? What's oh, that? Yeah, a penis. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who has the penis of the week? <laughs> what is it, Lara Bricker? It's it right is, here, baby. Uh, <laughs> Dixie Ebright has submitted an albino elephant of nice. the week. 
Nice. Is named Kanyisa. She was rescued last January in South Africa, being found alone, dehydrated with horrible injuries from a snare. And she went to be taken care of by the something Hertzbruit. And I totally just butchered that. Elephant Rehabilitation and Development Orphanage. Did you know there was an mm. orphanage for elephants? No. I did because Yasher Arley tweets about it all the oh, fucking okay. time. <laughs> well, anyway, the albino elephant just had her first birthday. There are many videos of her and her recovery and her herd, 16 elephants that have also been rescued. Nice. Um, there are daily videos that go out. And the reason I, I love the elephant of the week, but I don't know if anyone else got bombarded in their Facebook feed this week of the constipated elephant. I never want to see that video again. So <laughs> All right. I will Let's just close the book on that one. I will support Kanisa, the albino elephant, not the constipated elephant. So that's what I have to say. All right, Laura Bricker, folks want to send you their nominations for cat of the week. And as we have now demonstrated, it can literally be any kind of animal. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Tony Ball, folks want to reach out to you and try to convince you that you should, in fact, go back and watch the full back catalog of the Oprah Winfrey show. How can they find you on Twitter? They can give it a shot at Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, Kevin Flynn, how can they find you on Twitter? You can say, hey, Kevin Flynn at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy or follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission... News on that soon. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell Stan Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where Kevin has been growing out his hair into an old-fashioned American mullet. Yeah. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. It is it's nice also great back. because I know exactly who it is who is drinking a giant metal... Uh, it's Lara. Yeah, with ice cubes in it. <laughs> you know how I know it's Lara? <laughs> clang, clang. Because it's not you or me, and it happens while Toby's talking. Okay. <laughs> Mystery solved. <clears throat> it's because yeah. I've been drinking these new drinks um, that I learned about, which sounds so disgusting, and it may just be that I've reached a real low in the pandemic. You do half red wine, half Coca-Cola, ew, ew. or in... No, it's so good. And orange slices. It's so good. My God, this is like your lost cat book. Okay, this is that is the trashiest shit I've ever heard about. It's the official drink of like Portugal or something. And do you like, drink it out of a like, brown paper it's bag? Not, it, it's not the official drink of Portugal. <laughs> I, I almost, I can pretty much guarantee no, you. No, I think the official drink of Portugal is port. Or, yeah, I think it's the official drink of Lawrence, Massachusetts. <laughs> it's so no, it's like a Spanish drink. I'm telling you, it's the official drink it's of very Albany, good. Rochester. 
I don't care. That's the level of pandemic I'm I at right now, I think you meant Rochester, people. New Hampshire, Toby. Yeah. Calm down. Oh, yeah, not in Rochester. Settle down, Toby. Hey, Albany, Albany, Rochester, Syracuse are all in the Erie Canal. Listen, Albie, Erie Albany Canal. has earned it. See, Albany has earned it. Toby's got it. It's the official drink of the Erie Canal. <laughs> you poo-poo it. Next time we all get together, I'm bringing some, and you'll see. All right. nope. It peps you up. And off. No, it's really good. It kind of peps you up a little. It coats you up. up. And brings you down. It's the Karen version of uh, vodka and Red Bull. <laughs> it's really tasty. All right. And oh, Ken's man. like, why do we have Coke in the refrigerator? I'm like, no reason. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. Great. Now all of America will know. Okay. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay.